Mother's Day. It is upon us once again. And um, honestly, and I think you already know this because I've said it to you, I think, on multiple occasions before, um, as a minister, these um, secular originating holidays that seem to uh, cause people to expect sermons on that subject on those days, they, they do kind of irk me. <laughs> they, they, they do. Um, not so much the historically originating holidays, like, say, Fourth of July or Thanksgiving Day or even like something like Reformation Day, which is hardly recognized now, but it's still, you can find it on some calendars. Those holidays have historical root. In other words, something happened. You say, well, Reformation Day and Thanksgiving Day, that's not really a secular holiday. Well, but they are. They're not extracted from the Bible. Something happened. Now, there's a great spiritual content to those. There's God's providence is working, and that's why I'm very forward to want to preach on those days. And, but they, there's a historical thing that happened yeah, that, that's notable throughout the world or maybe just in our own culture. So I'm very happy to talk about those things. They're very pertinent. But there are many holidays that are just, they're, they don't have any historical basis. They're, they're just, they come from the culture. And uh, there's no real historical foundation. It's only their conceptual holidays. And they, they originate from secular sources. Now, sometimes they conveniently find some trifling little thing and use that as an excuse as the foundation for the holiday. You know, like, like, say, Mother's Day or Father's Day. What's the origin of Mother's Day and Father's Day? I know in both of those, I've talked about the origin. And guess what? I can't even remember what it is because it was completely inconsequential. So some fella comes along and says, well, we ought to have a day, day for mothers. I mean, it's not a bad idea. Not against the idea of Mother's Day or Father's Day. It's just that, you know, as a, a, a minister of Christ, um, I like to take my marching orders from the Lord. <laughs> and not Washington, D.C., or some list of federally mandated holidays, you know. So, you know, so that's just, you know, a thing with me, I guess. However, having said all that, um, the subject of mothers, I um, obviously do feel to be an extremely important subject, and it's one that I believe is foundational to the body of Christ, to families, and to the nation. It's foundational, and it's a very practical uh, subject, and most importantly, it's a very biblical subject. It's something the Bible does talk about, and so I want to preach on the subject of mothers on occasion. Uh, it's just that I'd rather not have uh, secular holiday inventors tell me when, you know. That's the, so, you know, it's like, let's do Mother's Day. We should have done it two weeks ago, uh, you know. But, you know, I'm not a stickler about that. It's just, you know, it's the dirt that gets under my fingernails, that's all. And so, uh, you know, here I stand. <laughs> I can do no other. But the truth is, once I prepare a sermon, I can have that under my craw some, but... You know, I want to preach on mothers, and that's where the mind is at. And uh, once I prepare a sermon on mothers, I really do want to preach it. Um, mothers lay the foundation for the next generation. 
They lay the foundation for the next generation of our culture, and they lay the foundation for the next generation of the body of God's people. So I find that the subject is very prudent. And what scripture have to say about the subject, I think, is vitally needed in our day. And so I'm happy to um, exploit the holiday, just like I exploit Christmas. You don't ever hear me say, well, this Christmas day, this is when Jesus was born. No, I don't know any such thing. And I don't need to know when he was born. I just want to remember it. If we happen to have known exactly when he was born, I, well, yeah, we could do it then. But not necessary. Neither are we commanded to. But the fact that it's in Scripture, we're commanded to preach the whole counsel of God, so that needs to come up. So when minds are there, that's what I talk about. And the same thing is true for Mother's Day or Father's Day. I'm happy to um, exploit the opportunity that is imposed upon us, but we can convert it into something good and something spiritual. And it gives us an opportunity to, to disseminate um, needed spiritual perspective on subjects that are, are so important. So it's my privilege to speak on the subject of mothers uh, on Mother's Day. Well, we have to get around to it, too. <laughs> but just a little context there. Well, you know, there are two holidays. <clears throat> there are two holidays that historically and traditionally have caused church attendance on those days to swell. And those two holidays, of course, would be Christmas and Easter. So historically speaking, I think it's becoming less of a thing as the society becomes more secularized and godless and, as they say, unchurched. But I think it's still true that on Christmas and Easter, there's an influx uh, of people in churches. Now, that's not so much true here. I guess we don't qualify as the, the local community church. It might be a nice place to stop by, you know. I guess, I guess not, you know, whatever. Um, but I have to say, you know, I really appreciate Chuck's prayer on Wednesday where he thanked the Lord for the people that weren't here. I said, no, see, you know, I've never heard it prayed so bluntly, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and, of course, anybody that from the outside, uh, no, I shouldn't say anybody, but so many Christians from the outside, they hear a prayer like that, oh, that is so narrow-minded, well, they're not getting it, you know. They're not getting it. Roger Williams taught that the assembly was for the elect, which he's right. It's only made up of God's people. And the assembly is for the training of God's people for when they go out into the world. This is not a Billy Graham crusade. It's meant for the instruction of God's people. We're happy for the unconverted to sit in and hear the gospel and be saved, sure. But that's not our main function when we come here. It's to, for the instruction of the saints. Part of that instruction may be bear a good witness of the gospel to the lost, sure. But that and so much more, see. So we have these two holidays where people swell the uh, attendance roles of, of, of the churches. So on Christmas and Easter, you have your slackers. <laughs> And you have your false professors and you have your reluctant family members come out of the woodwork and grace the local churches with their glorious presence. Well, that's, you know, great, okay? That's wonderful. Um, but, you know, I think the third most popular day for swelling the numbers of churches is Mother's Day. 
And it may be as we become more secularized, Mother's Day may overtake, as far as that statistic goes, of swelling the numbers in the pews, uh, it may overtake at some point Christmas or Easter, although they've made such a thing out of Christmas. But Mother's Day is very popular, and you'll see new faces show up on Mother's Day as well. And I want you to think about that. I want to think about that for a moment. So you have adult children, and these adult children, um, maybe they were in church at one time, but then they stopped being in church, and you don't see them anymore. But then sometimes on Mother's Day they show up. And um, they come to the services, and they're all dressed up. Well, maybe not so much nowadays, you know. Maybe I'm thinking old school, but it used to be they'd all get dressed up, and they'd be there dutifully with their mothers in attendance to the church services and smiling, and they'd all sit together once again as a family in the assembly, and they'd listened at first to some wonderful church music. Oh, nowadays it isn't wonderful church music. It's rock and roll with a, a, a reference to some guy who could be Jesus or your boyfriend. And um, it's very invigorating. And sometimes it's bluntly Jesus, but it's all about how happy he makes me, and that's why he's good. And we can all close our eyes and sway. If they could light their big lighters and sway, they would, but maybe that's going over the top. But they enjoy the entertainment, whatever kind of entertainment they have, the songs. And historically and traditionally, this ha used to happen a lot. I doubt it happens in the mega churches, but I could be wrong. But growing up, I remember seeing this plenty of times, right? The, the minister would be up there, and he'd say, Now, all the mothers in the church, please stand. And they'd all stand up. And you know, amen, God bless mothers. Yes, we recognize them, mothers. Now, you stay standing. All the grandmothers in the church, please stand up. And, you know, a handful of women will stand up and, oh, yes, God bless, and it's all, you know, great and wonderful. And then he may be bold and say, are there any great-grandmothers? Ooh, there's one or two. And they stand up, and I remember at times, sometimes you might see they'd pass out flowers, right? So maybe the, all the mothers, they you know, the, the ushers would come out, and, the, and they'd have maybe a single rose for each mother. And it's just like, oh, this is great, you know? And, uh, and then for the, the grandmothers, maybe they'd get like um, uh, two or three roses or a rose with a little... Uh, uh, a carnation or something, and then for the great-grandmothers, maybe they get like these little bouquets, and it's all very hot warming and wonderful and makes everyone feel good, and, uh, and uh, maybe the minister will even make a little something spiritual out of it, and while these mothers and grandmothers and great-grandmothers are standing and they're holding their flowers, let's have a word of prayer for them and just thank the Lord for the, the blessing of, of what they mean to them, and it's, and it's all very gratifying. Well, then we all sit down, you know, and um, uh, the people might listen to a relatively brief talk by the minister. Um, that, well, in this kind of environment, he's probably a man of the cloth. You know? I'm not a man of the cloth. I don't have any shirts with a notch out of it, and then I fill it in with a white thing, you know. I don't have that, so I guess I'm not a man of the cloth. But the man of the cloth, he'll give... Then he'll preach his short talk, his, um, his homily, right? He has a homily. And he gives his homily, and he speaks about uh, the grace, the grace and the beauty of mothers and the wonderful nature of motherhood itself. And it's very pleasing to hear. And the message is lovely, and it's charming. 
makes people feel good. It's a little bit like baby dedications. You know me and baby dedications. You know? <laughs> you know, it's a chan chance to ooh and to coo and the pastor, the, the pastor can schmooze and, and make a, an emotional connection with the parents. He looks them in the eye and he, it's like the baby's my own. And if he's bold, he takes the baby up and maybe the baby won't cry while he prays and all the hearts are endeared and we're dedicating the baby. You know, parents need to dedicate themselves, not the baby. Baby doesn't know what's going on, you see. Now, you can dedicate the baby to the Lord, but what you're really doing is dedicating yourself. But, you know, we're in a Catholic state where they have christening, and this is the Protestant version. So that always kind of rubbed me the wrong way. You said, Pastor, you're just too, you know. <laughs> well, maybe I am, but, you know. These aren't biblically established practices, but, you know, okay, fine, I'm not against them. But this is what happens. I'm just, just describing what happens. Well, uh, then after his, his wonderful talk on mothers and how delightful they are, after the meeting, the, uh, the, uh, the, the family that's all together finally on Mother's Day, they, they file out with the rest of the people and, they, and they, they shake the parson's hand. He's the parson. They shake the parson's hand and there's pleasantries that are exchanged and maybe a little baby, baby cooing and things like that and stuff. And it's just a wonderful time. And then the family is off to a Sunday brunch with mom at her favorite local restaurant. And it's all really good. And the, and the, the, the adult children with their kids in tow with mom and they're thinking, well, you know, we had to go out to church today, but it was worth it. You know, it's a fine, lovely spring day, and the sun is shining. We, we went to church, and that made Mom happy. This is her favorite restaurant. And, you know, they have some good food here. And in the end, it was worth going to church because we were honoring Mom, and everything's a-okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, there's that, okay. And then there's real motherhood which is very different from the feeling you get in most Mother Day services. Because, in my opinion, real motherhood is far more gritty than that presentation. And the grittiness of real motherhood starts right from the beginning, giving birth. I mean, there's blood everywhere. <laughs> You know, and you know, you go in some of these wards and women are screaming and there's yelling and there's blood and there's all sorts of, and she's, her temper is short. She's had enough. And when's this baby going to come? And you, you hear some women going crazy. Now, I got to say, when I was there for all the delivery of our children, I didn't participate, but I was there. And uh, uh, I have to say, Paula, you know, it's, she did her Paula thing. You wouldn't hear a peep out of her. You know, I'm sure there was pain in her childbirth, but uh, she would be like, you know, like when she sneezes, you don't hear it. You know, she sneezes. It's, did you sneeze? <laughs> yes, I did. Oh, did you give birth? <laughs> so she doesn't want to make a spectacle of herself. You know, she's not here this morning. She's under the weather on Mother's Day. You know? But she gives birth like she expresses herself in large groups. <laughs> you won't hear her, you know. It's just her way. And I have to say, her way is very endearing, right? That's why she's my wife. I kind of like that in her, you know. Um, but right from the beginning, motherhood is hard. You know, they said to me, 
Oh, Mr. Gallagher, would you like, I've told you this, would you like to cut the umbilical cord? Now, I didn't say this, but it's like, no, I don't want to cut the umbilical cord. That's your job. It's like, do you want to cut? It, like, talk about, to me, it felt like condescension. Oh, yes, let me take those scissors and, what do you think, right about here? I'm not squeamish about those things. I was there. I watched stuff happen. I stood at the head of the bed and not leering at their feet. Well, don't you want to see the baby come out? No, no, not really. I'll watch the baby come out. I'm not saying this is a moral imperative. Look, someone's got to deliver the baby. If I had to deliver the baby, I'd deliver the baby. But, you know, in my view, it's in my view. I'm not saying this is a Bible truth. But, you know, your wife is sort of in a compromised position. She's not feeling good. And I'm going to get there and join it. Look, the, let the doctor, I'm right here for her. You're there for the baby, doc. <laughs> the way they do things. I may, maybe it's me. <laughs> but motherhood is gritty from the beginning. It starts at birth. And then right after birth, immediately, there are diapers. I won't go into any diaper stories, but they're horrifying. And I don't know, God gave something to women that makes them able to withstand the horror of a really nasty one. <laughs> I just did not have the constitution. I'd almost throw up every time I have to do it. <laughs> and then there's babies crying at 2 a.m., at 4 a.m. You pick them up and you console them and they're throwing up on you. This is unrelenting. So it starts with the, with the pain of childbirth and the blood and the, all this stuff. And then there's this hyper and there's crying and there's trouble. And then, then they get older and there's more trouble and it's a little bit different. You have to bring them to soccer practice, they say. Yeah, soccer. Well, okay, that's what they say they do. They bring them to soccer practice. And you're just busy. There's laundry. It's So... Real-world mothering is a little, it, you know, puts a little bit more dirt under your fingernails than kind of the image you sort of get in mother, Mother's Day presentations in a lot of churches. Um, and when I talk about real motherhood, I say real motherhood is more gritty. What I mean by that is... Um, Motherhood as God intends it. Motherhood in a sin-cursed world as lived out by a Christian mother. That's no small thing, particularly in 2022. And for God, a God-fearing mother, that Mother's Day celebration the puff and fluff of the Mother's Day celebration in most churches uh, doesn't really match the reality of what it takes to be a mother. So I thought I would look at three examples of motherhood this morning. I prepared the sermon yesterday, and then this morning I'm looking at it, and I say, I can't get to all three examples. So I guess we'll do the last two tonight. I determined I can only do the first one. So we'll talk about mothers all day long. I wasn't going to do that. This evening I was going to talk about what we didn't finish, I had some more thoughts from last Sunday night about eternity in heaven. So I'll have to put that off for a week. Because um, I didn't want to rush this first example. I just listed out three examples, sort of off the top of my head, studied the text, and said, yeah, these are all great. You know, you can't make a mistake when you're talking about the Bible. Or you can make a mistake interpreting it, maybe, but 
the truth of the Bible, you can't make a mistake with any of the truth in the Bible. So we'll look at one example this morning, and that's the Syrophoenician woman that came to Jesus that we read about. But before we go back to Matthew, I want you to look at the rendition of this account from the Gospel of Mark first. So go to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. And we're going to start at verse 24. Now this is the parallel text to the passage we read in Matthew chapter 15. But Mark gives us some details here that Matthew doesn't give. And Matthew gives some details that Mark doesn't give. So we need to see both. All right, verse 24, Mark 7, verse 24. And from thence he arose, that is Jesus, and went into the borders of Tyre and Sidon. Now I'll emphasize the importance of that tonight through another example. But they went to the, Jesus went to the borders of Tyre and Sidon, that's where Phoenicia is, and entered into an house and would have no man know it but he could not be hid. Now, you see, we weren't given that detail in Matthew, but Mark gives it to us, and that's part of the reason I'm reading this. I just wanted to bring out a point here. Jesus is God. Jesus was God. He is God. But as he sojourned on this earth, he was the God-man. And because he was a man in human flesh with all the hardships that are to be born in human flesh except for the curse of course but he could grow hungry he could grow thirsty he could grow weary he had to sleep he had to eat he was a a real man a human being but as the God man at this point we can see from Mark's account here in verse 24 he wanted to be alone He needed to be alone. We could develop how true that is, but I'm not going to take time to do that. But if you just follow the text leading up to this passage, just read like this chapter and the chapter before the kind of thing and see what was happening, you realize he'd been through a lot. He needed to get away and be alone. He had been challenged and opposed by the Jewish leadership, trying to trip him up. He had just fed the 5,000. And he was so weary from all the, you know, the opposition, then the massive crowds and the teaching and having to project himself. He didn't have a PA system, you know. But all this teaching, then he went away up on a high mountain to get alone. He just needed to get away. The disciples went out in the boat and he had to walk on the sea. And then he was busy teaching and teaching and teaching and healing and miracles. And it's just always dealing with the crowd. There comes a point. Because he's a man, he just needed to be alone. And you know, like he probably was reaching that breaking point because I don't think Jesus was any slacker. He would work his fingers to the bone, but at this point, it says he would have no man know that he was in that house. He didn't want anyone to know. He got away. He needed a break. But he could not be hid. <laughs> Why? Verse 25, for a certain woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and fell at his feet. She knew about Jesus. She came and sought him out. And there she is. 
knocking at the door. She knows he's there, and she wants some assistance. Verse 26, she fell at his feet, we're told. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by nation, which means she's a Syrian, a Syro. She's a Phoenician. She lives in Phoenicia, which you got Tyre and Sidon, and we'll know from the other uh, from putting the text together that she, uh, Jesus right now is in a city between Tyre and Sidon. All of that is Phoenicia on the coast, okay? Which comes more important for us tonight, not so much this morning. So she was a Greek, a Syro-Phoenician, probably born in Syria, living in Phoenicia, Greek-speaking, maybe because of one of her parents. But she was not a Jew. She was a Gentile. And she besought him that he would cast forth the devil out of her daughter. But Jesus said unto her, Let the children first be filled. For it is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it unto the dogs. pretty stark statement by our Lord. We'll deal with the starkness of it, but all I really want you to see for now is that in essence, Jesus is rejecting her request. This mother has come to Jesus for the healing of her daughter. And Jesus in essence is saying, I came to feed the children of Israel. I didn't come to feed dogs. That's tantamount to saying, I'm not going to help you. You say, well, how can this be? Well, you can see the words. We'll talk about that in time. Verse 28, and she answered and said unto him, yes, Lord. Yet the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. And he said unto her, for this saying, go thy way. The devil is gone out of thy daughter. And when she was come to her house, she found the devil gone out, and her daughter laid upon the bed, healed and made whole. All right, now let's go back to Matthew chapter 15, and we're going to look at this more carefully from the account there, and we can take into consideration what we've seen in Mark. So Matthew chapter 15, and we start at verse 21. Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. Now, in the next verse, Matthew gives us something that Mark didn't give. Mark had told us he didn't want to be with anybody. He went to this house to be alone, but this woman found him. Now, Matthew's telling us something Mark didn't tell, but he answered her not a word. See, in, in, in Mark, she asked for a healing of her daughter, and then he responded, hey, I came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I didn't come to feed dogs. And that's sort of a, a, a briefer summation of the essence of what transpired. But Matthew's supplying a little detail here. 
So here she is in verse 22, asking Jesus to heal her daughter. And Jesus, we're told, and he answered her not a word. He ignored her. Well, that's tantamount to saying no. That's tantamount to rejecting her request. She's asking for something. He's not even responding to the question. That's not a yes. You say, he didn't say no. He's not dealing with it. I think any one of us would take that as, he doesn't want to do it. He doesn't even want to address me. That's what Jesus did. You say, how uncomfortable would Jesus do in that? Well, first of all, let's establish what he did. So that's tantamount to a rejection. He answered her not a word. And then we're told something else that we didn't know from Mark. In the balance of this verse. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. <laughs> They're saying, Lord, we came here. Look, we've been with the hordes and the masses nonstop. We're worn to a frazzle. We came here to escape. We need a little R&R. Now this woman comes, and she's crying out, and she's crying after us. Lord, send her away. Get rid of her, Lord. We didn't come here for this. There's going to be no end to this. There's always people with need. That wasn't recorded in Mark. It's recorded here. Now, is she sitting there listening to all that? First of all, she says, Lord, heal my daughter. Jesus doesn't even bother responding to her. Then she hears the disciples saying, get rid of her. She's a pain in the neck. She, all she does is cry out. We're sick of hearing her. I mean, it seems like Jesus has rejected her by ignoring her. And then the disciples of the Lord have rejected her, saying so. And then in verse 24, But he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's rejection number two. The first rejection is just ignoring her. She made a request. He ignores it. Then the disciples chime in and say, Get rid of her, Lord. And then he says, I only come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Which is to very obviously say, I didn't come to minister to a Syrophoenician woman. I didn't come to minister to the Gentiles. That's rejection number two. Rejection number one, silence, ignoring her. Rejection number two, saying I've come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, not to the Gentiles. That's not my ministry. Over two no's. The irritation of the disciples and their request to get rid of it would think would be very discouraging to her. I mean, what influence does she have with Jesus? These are his disciples. Now, this woman, she resides on the border between Jews and Gentiles. She resides on the border between Jews and Gentiles ethnically and geographically in both ways. She's not a Jew. She's a Gentile. But she knows of Jesus. We're told from the text, she knew of Jesus. She's there on the border. She knows about Jesus. She's heard about him. She's heard the stories. She's no doubt aware of the miracle-working power of the Lord. And she has a daughter. She's a mother. And her daughter's sick. And she's very sick. Not just your normal sickness. She has a devil, we're told. 
So she comes to Jesus, and she cries out, we see in verse 22, and cried out unto him. She cried out loud. She's shouting. She's anxious. She's demanding attention to the point where the disciples, it, it irritated them, right? In the end of verse 23, send her away, for she crieth after us. Jesus ignores her. With Jesus, he ignores her. And then he says, I am not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. First he ignores her. Then the disciples say, get rid of her. Then he says, as if to say, don't worry, I've come to Israel, not to Gentiles. Is Jesus being unkind? Is Jesus unloving? Is Jesus unsympathetic? Is Jesus not being Christ-like? <laughs> no. In my opinion, he knows exactly what he's doing. It might not be apparent to her <laughs> or to most of us, as we read this, particularly, you know, it causes you to scratch your head a little, and that's understandable. So Jesus ignores her. Then the disciples plead to get rid of her. And then he tells her, I only come to the lost sheep of the heart of Israel, house of Israel, which is to reject her request a second time. And in verse 25, she responds. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. She's not giving up. I think a lot of people would have given up by then. Not her. But it says she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. He just ignored her question. The disciples seemed to have insulted her. Then Jesus said, I only come to the lost sheep of Israel, not to you Gentiles. Her response is she worshipped Jesus and continued to plead the cause of her daughter. Then Jesus rejects her a third time, right? Verse 26, but he answered and said, it is not meat to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. You know, now it's getting, seems like downright cruel. First he ignores her question. Then he says, I only come to the lost sheep of Israel. Then she responds by worshiping him and as a mother pleads for her daughter yet again in spite of these rejections, two of them, and then he responds by basically saying, no, I didn't come to minister to dogs, and you're one of them. It's like patently offensive. That's what Jesus said. And what does this Gentile mother, with a very serious, sick daughter, do in light of all this? Does she turn around and 
and walk away dejected? That would make sense. I mean, how far can you press this? I mean, Jesus couldn't have spoken any clearer. Does she walk away and hang her head in shame, saying, what was I thinking as a Gentile coming to the Jewish Messiah? I know they Jews don't want to have any dealings with us. What was I thinking coming to them? I know all the Jews are surrounding them. Why did I think I'd have any sway with them? What was I thinking and just be embarrassed? She didn't do any of those things, did she? No. What she did do is a little bit shocking. She actually takes Jesus' rejection, and she actually takes the words of Jesus and turns them on him. Because Jesus said in verse 26, it is not meat to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. And she said, truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. You want to use a dog analogy to reject my request, but isn't it true that dogs eat the crumbs off the table? She turned his words back on him as an argument to say, won't you heal my daughter? Now, there's all sorts of things that can be going through our mind, but I think one of the things that I think would naturally go through our minds is the gall of her, right? I mean, does she realize who she is addressing? I mean, she can't take no for an answer. And she's doing this with Jesus, the creator of the world. Look, I get that. I feel the same way. Is there's a little bit unnerving looking at this, like, what is she doing? You want a thunderbolt to come down from on high? <laughs> you want legions of angels to come and deal with you? It doesn't seem right almost. It seems disrespectful. Yeah, it took a lot of gall for her to do that. I get that. But I think that Jesus got from her exactly what he wanted to get from her and knew all along what he was doing and why he was doing it. <laughs> I don't think Jesus was being unkind. I don't think he was being uncaring in his rebuke of her, in, her re in his rejection of her request, and even of his categorizing her as a dog, along with the other Gentiles. I think he wanted to elicit from this dog, <laughs> this Gentile mother, I think he wanted to elicit two things from her. For the sake of his disciples, for the sake of that generation, and for the sake of our generation. I think he wanted to elicit two things. The first thing he wanted to elicit is the great faith of this Gentile woman. Now, we see her faith expressed, for instance, in verse 22. And the woman, and behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord. She refers to him as Lord, thou son of David, which is an expression of messianic recognition. 
Jesus is the descendant of the king of Israel. He's of the Davidic line of the kings. He is the Lord, the son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed for the devil. She believed that he could heal her. She confessed who he was with accuracy. She spoke true doctrine, and she had faith in his miracle-working powers, and she had faith in his desire and willingness to do right and good by those who are downtrodden. And so she sought Jesus out on behalf of her daughter, even though she was a Gentile dog. There's some faith there, okay? And look at verse 25. Then came she and worshipped him. That's faith, brethren. She worshipped him. I mean, that would be blasphemous. He were not God himself. She came and worshipped him. And not only that, she said, Lord, help me. Again, after all these insults and rejections, she pleads that he would help her. This woman has put to shame the Jewish Pharisees and Sadducees, as you can read in passages just before this, leading up to this, who opposed Jesus, who tried to trip him up, who hated him and wanted to kill him. The Israel that he came exclusively to minister to. Their leadership, that was their position on Jesus. She puts to shame those who sat in the seat of Moses as, quote, God's chosen people. They hated him and they rejected him. She believed on him and had faith in him. So Jesus went out of his way to put as many roadblocks in front of this mother and as many obstacles in front of her as he could to discourage her because he wanted to bring something out. She pleads as a mother for her daughter. Jesus knows that. But he ignores her intentionally. He does so in spite of her recognizing him as the son of David. You know, this Gentile woman is recognizing he's the son of David. Jesus sets that aside. He ignores her, and in spite of the fact she's expressed faith that he can heal her, he still ignores her. And he says he's come only but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and not to Gentiles, in response to her, which is another, uh, the second rejection of her request. And then as a result of that second rejection, she worships him and pleads yet again for her daughter. And Jesus says, no, I didn't come to minister to dogs, in essence. Now, after all that, here's the point. She still believed on him. She still trusted him. She still believed that he is the son of David and can heal my daughter. And she wouldn't let go. She had faith. She had faith where Christians wouldn't. At least professed Christians. 
something goes wrong in our lives. Where is God? Well, look how Jesus is responding to her. Did she say, well, that's the way it is. What kind of Messiah is he? I'm out of here. I'll go to someone who can help me. You're Christians that will do that. You had Jews that would do that. You had the Pharisees that wanted to kill him. It's like Jesus could do anything to this woman. She's going to keep on believing and keep on pleading. <laughs> and so Jesus responds to her great faith. And he says, so say once he says, you know, dogs, I didn't come to minister to dogs. And she responds, well, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs. Jesus then says in verse 28, Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. See, I think that Jesus intentionally spoke to her like an intolerant Pharisee, but loved her like the Son of God. All to prove a point. Look at her faith. Something in the life of, of Christians sometimes can come into our lives and it's bad. We get bad news. Where is God? Why don't he deliver me from this? What's happening? Isn't he real? No, I believe he's real, but then we go into consternation. And, and then there's the temptation. Well, do do I just walk away from my faith and, and, and people struggle because life isn't just exactly the way they wanted it? Look what Jesus is doing to this woman. And she doesn't even have a quote-unquote legitimate claim to him. She would not cease to believe. And Jesus wanted the scribes and the Pharisees and his disciples and everybody else to see that. And he enabled them to see it. He had enabled you and I to see it. 2,000 years later, we're looking at this, right? He spoke like an intolerant Pharisee. Well, you're a dog. I can't minister to you. I mean, it was true. He did come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The opening up of the, the gospel to the Gentiles, that starts with Cornelius, and then Paul brings out the truth. It's not during Jesus' ministry. What Jesus said was true, but the way he phrased it was meant to antagonize, to prove a point. It's the perfect rebuke of a faithless, unbelieving Jewish nation. It is also the perfect rebuke of a backslidden Christian nation in 2022. Let this Syrophoenician Gentile woman put the Christian church to shame. So I think that's one reason Jesus dealt with her so roughly, is to bring out, um, bring the pearl out of the oyster, you know. That's what he did. He revealed the treasure hidden, hidden underneath the earth. But I think there's a second reason that, um, not so much a reason, there's a second thing Jesus wanted to elicit from this woman, and he did so by dealing with her the way that he did. First, he shows us her great faith as a Gentile. Secondly, he makes it obvious for us to see the tenacity of this mother. 
the faith of this mother in her unwavering love, not just in faith in Jesus, but not just for Jesus, but her unwavering love and devotion to her daughter. That cannot be escaped. She knows he has miracle work and power. She knows he speaks as one with authority. She calls him Lord. He's the son of David. And she's walking a thin line there. Look, for our purposes this morning, I wanted us to see this woman. I wanted us to see this mother. And I wanted us to see her unconditional, unwavering, fierce love for her daughter. And she did so as a God-fearing woman who was still in a lot of her ignorance. But even with her ignorance, the Lord had dealt with this woman in some preliminary way. She had been prepared for the coming of Messiah. In a way, most of the Jews were not. She was the elect from before the foundation of the world. Maybe she hadn't fully realized that yet, but God knew her. And she stands as an example. This mother would not quit. <laughs> Jesus probably wanted to see that too. And here on Mother's Day, it's a good thing to see. She wouldn't quit. A mother will fight for her children's welfare. A godly mother does not defend her children's sins. Nor does she cover up for them. But she will fight for the welfare of her children, whether they're godly or ungodly. When I say you fight for their welfare, it doesn't mean you cover up for their sins. Sometimes you don't post bail. Let them learn their lesson. You know? <laughs> but whatever she does, if Dove, she's doing it for the betterment of her daughter's life and for her spiritual wholeness. And sometimes it's touching love, sometimes it's tough love, but she does what she feels is necessary. She'll fight, and a mother will fight, if I may say, even recklessly to her own peril in order to secure her children. And when a mother is determined to do that, that means you better get out of the way. You know? It's pretty obvious from this woman. She's talking to Jesus the way she did. Like I say, she's on a razor-thin line there, you know, But when she said, when she said, but the dogs eat the crumbs off the table, I'm sure Jesus has a, I don't know if he has a stern face, but it's probably not a smiling soft face on him, but by what he was doing and what he was saying, right? But I think that was in a sense of mass, but I think inside when she said the crumbs from the master's table, the dogs can eat those, right? I think then he smiles like, that's exactly what I was looking for. And I knew you'd give it. But a mother fights. You know, I was reading, I went and looked up bear.org, I think it was, bear.org. <laughs> I was thinking about mother bears, right? So I was reading about mother bears, and I, I was reading a statistic that said, when humans, when human beings are killed by grizzly bears, because grizzlies are aggressive, you know, the, the black bear, you know, not so much. But the brown bear, the grizzly bear, is an aggressive breed. <clears throat> and when grizzly bears kill human beings, 
Statistically, 70% of the killing of grizzly bears to human beings are the result of a mother bear protecting her cubs. When a human being dies from a grizzly bear, 70% of the time it's from a mother bear protecting her cubs. Now we're talking about the animal kingdom. <laughs> the, the, a bear is an animal. And yet we can see in a grizzly a mother's protective care for her own. I've told you the story. I wish I had the detail. But why? I was at Pastor Cugini's and we were just talking. We're in his office and maybe we're making a victory hour. And he's sitting behind the desk and I'm sitting in the chair on the other side of the desk. And he's got his mic and I got the mic and we're talking before or after and just chit-chatting. And he says, well, I went into Sunday school class with your mother, and she was... And he just said something brief, not even a sentence. Was, it, he didn't describe distinctly what they were talking about, but I got the impression it was something along the lines of, my mother was upset because of the spiritual thinking of someone close to her. And so I was reading into it. You know, she was venting herself. Now, usually when Pastor she would be teaching Sunday school class, I think... In, in there or in there. No, I think it was in there. Pastor Jeannie moved over there, and she'd have a Sunday school class. And my mother, you know, she'd, if she's teaching Sunday school class to little kids, it'd be like, so, you know, and she's being like my normal mother, very self-effacing and, and humble and silly, and she could connect with children. She's saying, well, you know, blah, 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 she's talking. Then Pastor Cugini would stick his head in the door to check on things, and as soon as she saw his Pastor Cugini, you know, she'd be going like that, and she had to be like, uh, yeah, no, no, Marge, you just go on. Because I, I, I got this from, Marge, you just go on. You keep teaching. Don't worry about me. And then he'd come and sit down, and she'd be like, um, uh, uh, you know, and she'd get flustered. I mean, and that'd be my mother, right? So, but... But we're sitting in Pascagini's office. Pascagini says, yeah, I went to your mother's. I, and I've already heard about how my mother has meltdowns when he shows up because she's just intimidated by him, you know. And uh, so um, I'm thinking, oh, Pascagini, he went, he went to my mother's uh, Sunday school room again. So I can only picture that. I'm kind of smirking to myself. And Pascagini said, I went to your mother's. And she was saying, and, and just a quick reference, I don't even know what it was, the detail, but there was something she was upset about because of some probably family member that was often there thinking about and he says, let me tell you something. He says, he says, your mother. And he didn't mean that as an insult. He meant like, whoa, she has more bite than I thought, you know, because my mother doesn't give the impression of having bite, you know. And, uh, but, you know, she can have bite. And I knew exactly what he was talking about because I've seen my mother. If there's a relative and they're saying this, that, and the other, and that is wrong, and it gets under a then she's piling this article, that article. She includes a book. She has a track on that, and she makes a care package. She ships it in the mail, and when she does, she has a way about it. It's like, you can't stop her. She goes like Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, and it's like, you got to get out of her way. I always say, that's the German coming out of my mother, you know what I mean? And uh, I knew exactly what Pascal and it made me chuckle inside, you know? Like, no, you don't even have to explain. I know what you're talking about. And my mother would get that way. My mother was never, like, she wasn't, she wasn't hyped up like that. But when it came to, like, spiritual things that were off, my mother read a lot. She was always reading. 
she'd get articles, she'd be reading, like, uh, she might be reading the New American, forget it, she's reading the New American, and reading about the condition of the nation, but she's all up in arms, and, and one time she was up in arms, I think maybe she was beginning to get her Alzheimer's, but it was just really early. I say, Mom, if that's the way it is, maybe we need to get a Jeep and strap on a, a, a 50 caliber machine gun to it. And she says, well, yeah, maybe you should. And I'm thinking, my mother is like, oh, you shouldn't have guns in the house. They're dangerous, you know. But when she gets rolling, forget it. And uh, she finds out someone's, uh, you know, dissing her children in some way. Step back. See, Mama Bear. See? And I think there's, you know, different women may express it differently, but I think there's an instinctive thing in mothers um, that's sort of universal. Unless there's, you know, there's spiritual problems, obviously it's not universal because not all mothers are good mothers. Perversion has to take place for a mother to end up that way, but in a, a world like ours, yeah, it can, it, it can take place. So, you know, the scripture talks about you rob a bear of its whelps, right? You can find that in Proverbs 17. You can find that in uh, Hosea chapter 13. It's a, it's a thing that you can find in the scriptures about mother bears. Let's look up the one in Proverbs. Proverbs 17. And verse 12. Let a bear be robbed of her whelps. Let, okay, I read that right. Let a bear robbed of her whelps meet a man rather than a fool in his folly. Now that verse is structured like the, the, the 17th century seculars quote, I always quote, I'd rather see a regiment with swords drawn coming at me than one Calvinist convinced he's doing the will of God. So the juxtaposition is, let me think of the most horrifying thing. A whole army coming at me with weapons and just me alone. I'd rather see that than one Calvinist who believes he's been called by God and has been sovereignly appointed and empowered to take me out. I'd rather take on the army than that one Calvinist. So that's what the fellow said. So that juxtaposition is exactly what's here. I'd rather see a mother bear who's had her cub stolen from her Cubs stolen from her, coming at me, than a fool coming at me in his folly, because he's more dangerous than the mother bear. So the idea is, this is like the pinnacle of an example of danger. A mother bear robbed of her whelps. <laughs> Jacob wrestled with the angel, and he wouldn't let go until he prevailed and he got his blessing. This Syrophoenician woman persisted with Jesus for her daughter and won her blessing, didn't she? So I guess we can walk away with this. Never underestimate a mother. Never underestimate particularly a committed God-fearing mother. She takes no prisoners, that's what it seems like. Motherhood is not being accurately portrayed in the pomp and circumstance and fineries of Mother Day celebrations in a lot of churches. Real motherhood requires something. 
I just made out a bullet list. Ten things, just off the top of my head, in ten seconds. Motherhood requires work, devotion, commitment, self-sacrifice, worries, hardships, and trials that go with being a mother because you have children, right? Particularly as they get older. It's a little worse sometimes. Perseverance, tenacity, courage, faith, and love. Love for God, love for Christ, and love for her family. These are all things that Christ has given us. Well, there is somebody else in our lives who have given us the same thing, hopefully. It's not true of all moms, mom, mothers. But our mothers have given us the same thing Christ has. Different in nature and certainly in magnitude, but in principle. They share much in common. And for his sacrifice, first and foremost, and for their sacrifice, the sacrifice of our mothers, we ought always to be thankful. First to him, and then to her. And that's how we honor our mothers, amongst other ways, of course. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank thee for our mothers and what they mean to us, what they have meant to us, what they will continue to mean to children of future generations. We pray for the mothers of this assembly that you would guide them and direct them and empower them and strengthen them. Bless and be with them, satisfy them, Equip them. And Father, enable us to honor them and to love them as they have loved us. And most profoundly, Lord, we can't do any of this unless we love thee as thou have loved us. So help us to honor thee. Help us to honor our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and to revere him and to respect him and to love him enough to live for him. We thank thee for his sacrifice. We thank thee for the sacrifices of our mothers, of our fathers, of our parents, of all the body of Christ for the cause of Christ. And we pray that your hand would be upon us as we continue to live our lives. May we honor our mothers and may we honor our fathers and may we honor our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Equip us to do all these things that we would please thee and bear a good witness to a world that needs to see all of these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.